If you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5. Today we're concluding our summer sermon series on the Beatitudes by looking at verses 11 and 12. Uh, This is part two of the last Beatitude on persecution. If you remember back a couple weeks ago, we saw that persecution is the unbelieving world's reaction to the Beatitudes. The world encounters the Christian, the one who is poor in spirit and meek and mourns sin and hungers and thirsts for righteousness and and is a peacemaker and is pure in heart and, and all the rest. And for various reasons that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the world responds with persecution. Sometimes that persecution is physical and bloody. Most of the time it's verbal. And as we see here, it can take the form of lying about someone, slandering their name, or simply just throwing insults in someone's face. But again, this is the unbelieving world's reaction to the Beatitudes. And this means that this list that Jesus gives at the very beginning of Matthew 5, This list that we're about to read through again for the last time. This isn't something that is going to save them from hardship. Their faithfulness to these is going to cause hardship. But here's the driving question this week. If if persecution is the world's reaction to these Beatitudes... What should be our reaction to their persecution? What is our reaction to their reaction? We'll see that in just a moment. But first, let's read our text. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your gracious blessing upon this preaching of your word and Father, I ask that you would use it for the good of your people. 
We remember that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes through the word of God. Would you, uh, would, would you work and uh, instill and create, implant faith uh, within your people? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to begin in verse 11. And the first thing to do is to understand what type of persecution it is that we're talking about. And I'm going to be brief here because we did talk about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus is clearly talking about those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You remember the whole stolen honor illustration. That not every instance of persecution is what he is talking about here. You can look at American history and see uh, that uh, the Mormon church was persecuted all the way to Utah. And Mormon church, uh, Mormon, Mormons today would speak very proudly of the persecution they've suffered in the past. But that's not what the Lord is speaking of here. He's repeating himself. He says something similar. Uh, last time we saw that He was speaking of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This week he's speaking for those who are persecuted on my account. This is not general persecution. He's saying, blessed are those who are persecuted because of me. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are being persecuted out of a reaction to the Beatitudes. That's... The motive behind the persecution. But what's, what's the reaction? A very common reaction to persecution, probably the most common one, is anger. Right? Someone hurts us, someone slanders us, someone treats us unjustly, and we become angry. Or if you want to get someone really angry, uh, slander, revile, persecute their spouse or their children. And we often want to respond in anger. We want to retaliate. We want to get even. Uh, we want uh, to go eye for an eye on them. Do to them what they've done to us. But this is not the Christian's reaction to persecution. We remember how uh, our Lord acted in the garden when he was arrested. We remember Paul's words to the Romans. He said, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Anger is not our reaction. Well, maybe we don't react outwardly. Maybe it's all inward. We just bottle it up and internalize it. So we don't answer slander with slander, but we may become bitter and resentful. We're melancholy. Someone treats us wrongly. And we ask the age-old question, why, Lord? Why would you let this happen to me? Do you not hear my prayers? Do you not care? Maybe it's an internalized reaction. Or maybe we're... Tempted to react with pride. 
We feel that we're being persecuted. And so we think, you know, I'm just, this is just proving that I'm just a better person than they are. They are treating me this way because they're morally depraved, bankrupt heathens, and I'm just such a good person. That's why this is happening. And we look down on those who are persecuting us as lesser. But again, none of these are the Christian's reaction. We're told the reaction in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus tells his disciples, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when you are persecuted on my account, rejoice and be glad. How on earth do we do that? Why would we do that? That sounds like something a crazy person might do. To rejoice and be exceedingly glad, as the King James puts it when we are slandered, when we are reviled. How are we to do this? I want to share some wisdom from the late James Montgomery Boyce. He's the longtime minister at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And he, uh, he made this comment. He said that some battles in the Christian life can be won in no other way than by knowledge. Not by reason, not by feelings, but by knowledge. Now, that sounds like the most Presbyterian answer ever, doesn't it? That's <laughs> what we love. We're, we're heady folks. Some battles can be won only by what we know, but it's it's true, and I'm going to prove it to you. Knowledge is how we're able to rejoice and be glad in persecution because we're remembering, we're confessing with our lips what we know to be true. Dr. Boyce highlights reason and feelings as two things that are not the answer. So let's start with reason. Are you going to trust your reason when the world lashes out at you? Are you going to trust your ability to make sense of it all? The Apostle Paul, as great as his mind was, as great as his reasoning abilities were, he couldn't rest on his own reasoning. In 2 Corinthians 4, he writes... We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. The Apostle Paul, brilliant mind he was, says these trials that we have experienced for the sake of the spread of the gospel, they have not driven us to despair, but they have perplexed us. They have confused us. They have bewildered us. We are not able to reason ourselves to the state where we rejoice and are exceedingly glad. We're perplexed. And I would say that if that applies to the Apostle Paul, surely we can apply that to ourselves as well. 
and know that we are not going to be able to make sense of all that happens in the Christian life. That's why Dr. Boyce says that some battles are not won by reason. What about feelings? Feelings are a powerful thing. Are you going to rest on your feelings in the midst of persecution? Again, I would not recommend it. As we know, just think of high school relationships. Feelings come and go. They can be like a roller coaster. They are unstable. And how do you think persecution is going to make you feel? Probably not great. Who inherently feels happy and jovial when they're being slandered and reviled? and imprisoned, or physically harmed. What if you happen to feel the same way that Elijah felt when he was on the run from Jezebel? You remember that story? She threatens to kill him. He's on the run, out in the wilderness, and he sits down under a tree, and he asks the Lord to end his life. He says... It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He's saying, I haven't done any better than all the prophets who have come before me in bringing about necessary change to Israel. I have, I have failed. I could not do what you called me to do. So just end my life. If you're trusting in your feelings, you're only going to be able to rejoice and be glad when you feel like it, when you feel good. But what happens when things turn and you feel bad? Again, we'd be wise to heed this pastoral advice from Dr. Boyce. Some battles in the Christian life can be won in no other way than by knowledge. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of what God has said to us in his word. We can rejoice and be glad in the midst of persecution by knowing who our God is, what he has promised, remembering that his purposes will not be thwarted and that he is in control. There's that famous verse in Psalm 119, verse 11. It says, I have stored up your word in my heart. Uh, Some translations say, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Dr. Boyce is making a similar point. I have stored up your word in my heart. I have hidden your word in my heart so that even in the midst of persecution, I might be able to rejoice. And just to be clear, we aren't rejoicing in persecution in and of itself. We we are not rejoicing. We aren't glad. We aren't celebrating sinful actions. That's what persecution is. It's sinful actions. We remember the second beatitude that we, as believers, mourn sin. We mourn our own sin and the sin of others. And so it grieves us 
to see another person behaving in a godless way. It grieves us because this person is a slave to sin. They're acting in accord with the enemy. So we aren't rejoicing in persecution in and of itself. We're rejoicing in something else. Back to Dr. Boyce's point. We're rejoicing in what we know to be true. And there are three things that I want to highlight that we know to be true because of persecution. Number one is we know who we are. Number two, we know where we're going. And number three, we know what's waiting for us once we get there. This is how we're able to rejoice in persecution because we know who we are, where we're going, and what's waiting for us once we get there. We'll go through these. When we're being persecuted for righteousness' sake, we can rejoice because we know we are counted among the number of those faithful believers who have gone before us. We see this at the end of verse 12. Jesus says, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the Lord is telling his disciples. He also is, is telling us, his, his people. They will do the same thing to you that they did to faithful servants in days past. I find that very encouraging. And I think the disciples probably would have too. Here's why. I want you to think about important people in your own life. Maybe a parent, maybe a grandparent, an uncle, an aunt, a loved one, or maybe not even family, a neighbor, someone who is just a a personal hero of yours. Someone you think very highly of. How comforting would it be for someone to say to you, you are counted among their number. You are counted among their company. Here's your, uh, my Tolkien quote of the summer. I haven't done one all summer. Not much background information is needed. All you need to know is there's a king who has, uh, his latter years have been robbed from him. And he's very worried about dying an old man who's just kind of a failure and hasn't lived up to the standards that people in his family are used to. But there's a opportunity for redemption. And this king falls in battle. He slays an enemy, but he's later killed and he's, he's fatally wounded and he's laying there on the battlefield and he says this, My body is broken. I go to my fathers. And even in their mighty company, I shall not now be ashamed. That king was able to say that because he knew he was dying an honorable death just as his fathers had. 
I think there's a similar weight here for the disciples. They could rejoice and be glad to hear that their suffering for righteousness' sake places them in the same company of those great names from times past. It would place them in the company of the likes of Amos, who was insulted by the chief priest and told to never come back and speak again. Or Jeremiah, who was beaten and put in chains and stocks. Or Micaiah, who told the truth and was slapped in the face. Or Elijah, who received death threats. Daniel, who was thrown in the lion's den. Or even John the Baptist, who is beheaded for insulting a powerful woman by calling sin, sin. There's rejoicing and gladness there. Knowing that they and we are counted among that mighty company of those believers who have been persecuted before us. But there's something even better. Not only are we identified with the prophets, Scripture makes it clear that This type of persecution, Christian persecution, identifies us with the Lord himself. We can rejoice and be glad because these present afflictions, being reviled and slandered, only prove that we belong to him. That we are his people. That's why it's happening to us. In Matthew 10, Jesus makes the statement, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? If they're going to call the the master of the house Beelzebub, Lord of flies, Lord of filth, if if they're going to call him a demon, what do you think they're going to say about his servants? But that's not even the important thing. He's the master of the house, but what is said about us? How much more will they malign those of his household? Persecution is proving you belong to his household. You are one of his people. You are adopted and brought into his family. You are made co-heirs alongside the Lord. This is what Christian Christian persecution demonstrates. We're identified among the prophets. And we're identified with the Lord himself. You see how we can rejoice and be glad in this. We're proved to belong to him. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the statement, he says that when Christians are persecuted, we could turn to Satan and say, thank you. You are giving me proof that I am a child of God. But it's not only proof of who we are. It's a reminder that we are being made like him. Christian Persecution grows us. It strengthens us. Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish pastor, 
was imprisoned for the cause of Christ, and he wrote these words from his cell. He said, I never knew by my nine years of preaching so much of Christ's love as he taught me in Aberdeen by six months' imprisonment. He says, in in six months, I have learned more of Christ's love than I did in nine years of preaching. We can rejoice because persecution grows us. It changes who we are. It makes us more like our Lord. So we can rejoice knowing who we are. We can also rejoice in knowing where we're going. And where would that be? See in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Again, we talked about this earlier in our time of confession. Do thoughts of heaven cause you to rejoice? Or do you just find this world sufficient? We're getting all we need here. I mean, heaven's fine, but heaven can wait. Do you long for heaven? Or are you just attempting to squeeze as much joy out of this life as you can? We need to remember where we're going. And we need to remember how certain is our arrival there. I've got a something I need to confess. There's, uh, I, I know you're supposed to buy local, support local businesses, but Amazon makes it so easy. I think of something I need, and I look it up, and I hit the buy now button. Um, in anyone who teaches my children how to use the buy now button, you'll, you'll be brought up under church discipline. Don't do it. <laughs> they know how to put stuff in the cart. They do not know how to hit by now. Uh, but it's, here's the point. When I hit that buy now button, somewhere in an Amazon warehouse, there is a label created that has my address. And that label is slapped onto the package, the box, whatever it is. And then in two days, it arrives at my door. Right? In the same way, Christian persecution is a reminder that there is an indelible mark placed on us. Saying that we belong to him and we are bound for heaven. And there's no stopping that arrival. The illustration breaks down because I know that there are packages that can get lost or delivered to other houses. Mail can get lost, but... Our Lord says of his own. He says this as he's being arrested. He says, of those given to me, I have not lost one. We rejoice and are glad knowing that he brings his own all the way home. That's something we should long for. Kind of rewrote Psalm 119.11 earlier. I'm just going to continue down that path. C.S. Lewis has a famous quote from Mere Christianity. Most of you, if you've 
hung out in Christian circles, you've probably heard this before. It's that famous quote, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You heard that before? If nothing in this world is able to fill that void and bring lasting satisfaction and bring true contentment, then maybe you were made for another world. I'm going to change up a few words there. If we find ourselves at odds with this world, if we find ourselves being persecuted, if the world is saying to us, you don't belong here, the most probable explanation is that we belong to another world. We are citizens of heaven. Jesus talks about this in John 15. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And again, I ask, could knowing that produce rejoicing and exceeding gladness within you? The world hates you because Jesus Christ chose you out of this world. I hope so. We know that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We know that in the Father's house are many rooms and our Lord has promised to go and prepare a place for us and then to come again and bring us to that place so that we would be with Him. Might knowing that produce rejoicing? Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The Christian is a man who should always be thinking of the end. He does not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. That is the secret of those men in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Why did Moses not continue as a child of Pharaoh's daughter? Because he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He had his eye upon the end, the recompense of the reward. And that brings us to our third point. The persecuted Christian can rejoice and be glad knowing who they are, where they're going, and what will be waiting for them once they get there. We see this in verse 12. For your reward is great in heaven. Now, maybe it's just me. I tend to kind of squirm when I hear the term reward, and I don't know if it's me just kind of chafing against the health, wealth, prosperity folks who seem to be fixated upon rewards. I don't, I don't, I'm not a believer because of, I've got my fire insurance. I don't want to be seen as a Christian who has ulterior motives. I, I serve Jesus really to, to get this. 
But I, I think my thinking that reveals more of a flaw in me than a flaw in Scripture, and we know that is, of course, true. Scripture plainly teaches that believers are rewarded. Jesus says it in verse 12, your reward is great. The author of Hebrews wrote that the Lord Jesus himself endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. Paul writes about the crown of righteousness that will be awarded to him and to all those who have loved the appearing of Christ. There is a reward. And again, the squeamishness is is my fault. It's my problem. Because I think too often when I think of reward, I think of something that is solely material. And that's not to say that the new heavens and the new earth are simply all immaterial. We will live in a new heavens and a new earth that is a real physical place. But we can become fixated on rewards as those material, self-exalting things that we desire here and now. Those beautiful, desirous things that the world holds out to us that we want so badly. Those things that exalt us and make us look great. Are we thinking about things that are seen or things that are unseen? We aren't directly told what this reward is. No doubt our Lord had good reason for that. But I think it's safe to say that just as all of the previous Beatitudes were spiritual in nature, so too is the reward. And again, I don't want you to just picture heaven as this just ethereal, immaterial realm where we just kind of float around with harps and sing Amazing Grace for 10,000 years. Heaven will be a physical place. We will live forever in a physical place. But the reward, just like all the other Beatitudes, is spiritual. Beginning with the fact the believer has eternal life. The believer will be resurrected. That's that's spiritual. I mean, we are told that our soul upon death immediately goes to be with the Lord and our body, which is still united to Christ, rests in the grave until this final resurrection. That we will be raised one day just as Christ's body was raised, but we will be raised imperishable. Meaning we will be raised in a body that will not betray us as we grow older. We went to a wedding this weekend. Uh, I had a first cousin get married just outside of Collierville. And we took the girls to a trampoline park, one of those indoor trampoline parks. And it is a miracle I made it out of there without tearing an ACL or MCL or just messing, badly messing something up. My body I cannot do the things it used to do. And that was revealed yesterday on those trampolines. That's part of the reward. A body that will not betray you as you get older. A body that will never know sickness and disease and hurt 
A body untouched by the effects of sin. A body in which we will live and enjoy the new heavens and the new earth forever. There's also the reward of being near to Christ. Being in fellowship with Him. Dwelling with Him. Seeing Him as He is. Never being separated from Him. A life that is not self-exalting, but Christ-exalting. We could go on and on through God's Word and see the reward that awaits His people. And again, to be clear, even this reward is all of grace. Another reason I kind of chafe against this at first is because when I think of reward, I think of something that I've done to earn it. We think, I, 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 I do this. I, I find this lost dog and I get a reward for it. The reward that Jesus is speaking of here is given not because we earned it, but because the Lord Jesus himself earned it. We don't earn eternal life. It's all grace. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and encouraged them, saying, God gave you newness of life. He saved you by grace. He raised you up with Christ. He seated you with him in the heavenly places. Why? So that in the coming ages... He might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ. That's the motivation behind this reward, that his immeasurable riches might be displayed. So, rejoice and be glad, dear Christian, when you are reviled, when you are slandered, when you are persecuted on the Lord's account, because such hostility is a confirmation of who you are, of where you're going, and what's waiting for you once you get there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, would this change us? Would it change how we view the unbelieving world? Would we not answer hate with hate? Would you give us understanding that we might look at those who are hostile to us and say, they're only doing this because they don't know Christ and they don't understand me. Would we have sympathy for them? Would we, as as Jesus commands, would we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, knowing that they are separate from you? Father, would it change the way we see ourselves as well? Would we be encouraged, knowing what such persecution proves, that we belong to you, that we will be with you, that we will share in your joy. And so far from resenting this persecution or far from wanting to strike back 
or, or becoming depressed by it? Would we be overcome with what's waiting for us? That we have an unspeakable joy, full of glory, awaiting us. And everything we see now is temporary. Everything is passing. But for those who are in Christ, there is an exceeding eternal weight of glory waiting. Might we see it and believe? Might we be encouraged? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn is, if I can find my bulletin, our final hymn is number 94, How Firm a Foundation. Would you stand and join me in singing?